The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. My mic is all bouncy here. I didn't somehow these hang on while I fix this thing. It's all jiggly, jiggly. Yeah, these elastic things came undone, so it's kind of dangling there. But <laughs> I don't know what happened. Boy, there must have been some activity in this studio over the weekend. Um, hey, did you get out to see that uh, super what? Super Wolf Blood Moon? Super Wolf Blood Moon Eclipse? <laughs> Hell no! <laughs> yeah. It was it. You know, I thought we were cold last night. We were we were minus. I think we we're minus two, and like feel like minus uh, ten or whatever. But you were minus like four. I, I don't. What were you minus fourteen? I was minus anything reasonable. I'll tell you that it was. Yeah, it was like negative fourteen was the temperature, and then with the wind chill, it was something even more extreme. And I just was. There's no way I was going outside. That was beautifully crystal clear, and the sky was perfect for viewing this phenomenon. But no way was if I going out. If you could survive, I yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I actually took like fifteen minutes of time today, and today I mean right now we're we're two we feel like minus nine and it's been low all day which is crazy because the day prior we were at almost 50 degrees yep but um yeah, so i went out to hook up one of those eye ring uh those those ring doorbells with a camera on mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. and all i needed to do was screw it in it literally everything was already set i did it all in the house and jim i was in so much pain my fingers yeah. felt like it was it was insane, and I I dealt with cold. You and I used to be up up at my inn up in New Hampshire, and it'd be minus fifteen, and we we'd be outside doing. But it's a dry dry cold uh, dry cold up there. But actually, you're colder right now than mine and Grant's old inn that's in the mountains in the, of New Hampshire, in the White Mountains up in the north part of New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah. You, where you are is colder yeah, right crazy. now than that. That's. Uh, and oh, and the worst part is we've got like seven or eight thousand people here in Rhode Island right now without power. Yeah, that well, and and you know it's funny we were talking about that as the storm because we got uh, about twenty inches of snow uh, right before the cold hit. We got the snow dumped on us, and the next day we got the cold. Um, and we were talking about the fact what happens because they were expecting some power outages, and I'm like, what happens if we lose the power and it's you know fifteen below zero? You know, it, it, this is only going to last a couple of days, but either way, it doesn't take very long at that cold for problems to happen. But no. fortunately, we didn't lose power. Yeah, please, you know, everybody th- out there, be safe. Yeah, I think we ought to have a have a contest here on Beyond Reality Radio. We ought to we, we ought to survive the longest in the cold in nothing but a bikini. Oh, well, that's not what I was thinking. That, no, that could I, be. I, that's uh, sorry. I don't even know why I went there. Though. I'm not sure, <laughs> um, but I'm thinking that people ought to submit a better place for you and I to move to. That's warmer. It's got to be warmer. Um, and well, we, I think anywhere's warmer right now. That's except, true. Yeah. That's true. So it opens it wide I mean, up. And you're warmer than New Hampshire right now. Well, yeah, go on. So, um, yeah, so people submit a um, place for us to move to. We'll check out the location. We'll find a place. We'll relocate, build a studio, and we'll we'll start somewhere much warmer. But what's the, what, what do they win for this? They win us they, being there. <laughs> they win us being there? Oh, invading their state. That's They, uh, they win yeah, us wow, in their you town. guys are lucky on that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially if you've seen JV in my bar tab. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But anyways, hey everybody, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. If you haven't yet, head over to facebook.com slash beyondrealityradio and like that Facebook page for us. Then head to beyondrealityradio.com. You can find all the stations we are in across the country and the list is constantly growing, so make sure you check it often. You can also download the smartphone apps, which are free and they allow you to listen live and catch past shows and more. 
or just listen right from the website any night we're live. Click the listen live or the listen live and chat button, and you can listen right there from the website while browsing the west, the west of the web. There we go. The West you know, of the Web? The West of the Web. See, uh, my, I think my lips froze. What was the, um, what's that character on, uh, was it The Princess Bride? Um, when he speaks like that? Oh, yeah, the guy yeah. Who's, who's Andre the Giant worked for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. He used to have that, that, that speech. He always felt like he was hunting wabbit. You're hunting wabbits, yes. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, robotic space exploration tonight with a uh, returning guest, Rod Pyle, space author and journalist. If, if anybody's keeping track, that's not who... We had scheduled for tonight, but the guest we had scheduled for tonight has the flu and had to cancel last minute. So um, Nasty, nasty going around. Rod has a new book out. He's been waiting to get on the show, so he was available, and he's agreed to be on with tonight. He's going to be talking about his new book called Interplanetary Robots. It's robotic space exploration, uh, the history of it, and what type of information it has gathered for us throughout the solar system and beyond. It's pretty cool stuff. And Rod is the expert, so we'll be talking to him about that tonight. You know, we need an expert on what clowns because oh. they're back again are these the creepy ones these are well, any any clown uh, they're all creepy, creepy let's yeah. be honest yeah, i've true. never met a clown that's not creepy it's true i don't care what's painted on their face but all right so as i said creepy clowns are at it again a pair of teenagers in washington state got quite the fright when they spotted a creepy clown staring at them from outside the clown then attempted to get into their home jingling the door handle back and forth According to local media, uh, local media report, the incident occurred in the city of Spokane, Washington, on Monday night when the children suddenly noticed there was a person done up as a creepy clown at their back door staring at them. Uh, the clown's intention seemed negative as it proceeded to try to jiggle the door handle in an apparent attempt to enter the house. Uh, terrified teens ran upstairs to the second floor of the house and called 911. After an extensive search by the officers, there was no sign of the clown although they appear to have taken the call seriously since officers were dispatched to the scene to investigate. Perhaps most unnerving observation of the clown uh, offered by the teens was that it's uh, that the this individual was not wearing a mask. Instead, their face was painted white and sporting an eerie red smile. The teen's mother says that this unsettling experience left them considerably shaken, and they have no idea who could have been behind the incident. And while she conceded that it may have just been a prank by uh, by somebody of some kind, the mom and her kids were not amused. And, uh, well, I mean, for the clown's sake, probably lucky that the uh, the homeowners and the parents weren't home. Can you imagine? Um, you see some, if I saw somebody standing at my back door like that, my instant reaction is going to be, well, I, it would suck because if somebody rented a clown for a birthday party, you'd have a dead clown. So, <laughs> that would not be pretty sad. No, I mean, it's, I, know, yeah, I, know. I just cannot do it. I know. So, um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't even know how to react to something like that. And I know these creepy clown things just keep popping up. You know, they kind of go in cycles. Jailing like door handles, trying to get into a, into an apartment, or looking, staring at them through the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, yeah. No, I just don't even know what to say about that. Yeah, I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't take too kindly to it either. No, it's, it's all set with that. So. Yeah. So we have um, clowns. <laughs> we have uh, some great guests coming up later in the week as w- as well. Uh, William Stick Evers will be with us. He's an astrologer. We're going to be talking about the 2019-2020 looming global crisis as he sees it in the stars. Um, and that's interesting too because last week we had uh, a part-time astrologer, actually a full-time astrologer, but a part-time. Um, prediction maker who was also talking about some very very serious events that are showing up in the stars. 
And uh, we've got, if any of this is true, we've got some very, very troubled times ahead. Well, um, yeah, it, we are in some scary times right now, so God only knows what's coming after. And then Wednesday, we've got Susan Messino, author, rock and roll historian. We'll be discussing the secrets of the universe, uh, in investigating the synchronicities, positive manifestations, healing with light, numerology, past lives, uh, ghost adventures, and pretty much so much more. Um, I'm glad you read that as manifestations because I saw it as something different when I was looking at it. Um, Thursday, Scott. <laughs> Cr- I'm not. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna leave that alone. And I, I don't even know what that means. Yeah, about don't say you, that. Then. Just don't. But say what, that. what does that mean for you? No, I don't want to. That's the first thing that comes to work. You know, I, I mean, I could write dog, and you'd be like, "Oh, thank. I, I thought that said this." I, that's bad, Jim. That's okay. Bad. Uh, Thursday night, Scott <laughs> Crichton will be with us. He's a revisionist historian. He'll be talking about the Great Pyramid hoax and Project um, Osiris. So we've got a great uh, week of shows for you this week. Yes. Uh, so And also, make sure that you uh, subscribe. You can do that right at Beyond Reality Radio. Subscribe to the show. And download it from iTunes or anywhere else. Just do us a favor and take two seconds of your time. Just rate the show for us. It helps push it forward and makes it easier for people to find and that's what it's all about, getting the word out. I don't know if you've seen sort of the craziness that's been going on on Twitter, but I posted that. No, I'm not on Twitter. I posted that uh, we were coming back in 2019, mm-hmm. and it's really gotten legs and taken off. And a lot of people are trying to find some some information. And bottom line is, yes, Steve, Dave, myself, we're going to be we're we're going to have a show coming out in 2019. On a on a made, on a network, and uh, we're looking forward to it. But uh, I I can't say the network yet because of course there's uh, legal issues and network has to be able to release that first. But it's pretty much guaranteed, and we're going to be back. So make I sure mean, you. It, I now, didn't I didn't realize uh, Cartoon Channel was that robust. I, yeah, uh, I mean, Saturday morning. Yeah, Saturday or was it Nickelodeon? Cartoon? I can't remember now. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that on television. Um, but no, so we will be back. Um, a lot of people, some people were saying, oh my God, Ghost Hunters come back. Now I'm not saying it's Ghost Hunters that's coming back. I am saying that we're going to be doing a show. Will it be Ghost Hunters? Will it be something else? Hmm, who knows? But there you go. So there's some inside information. Teasing. Tease, 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 tease. I, I wish I could get more. You, you, I know. Know, you know. You know a lot of the details, and but we, it's something that we've been working on for a long time. And, and I will take bribes, by the way. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, yeah he probably will, too. Uh, but uh, we've been working on this for a long time. Now, we've had numerous offers since we we uh, stopped doing Ghost Hunters, of course. But you know what? First off, we I wanted to spend some time with, with the kids. And uh, the kids are getting older now and, and so forth. So it's time It's time to get back to, uh, to what we, we love doing as well, as well as this that I love doing. And... Uh, but the main factor is we wanted to do it on our own terms and make sure that the show was going to be real. Because there's a lot of shows out there, and a lot of them are pretty much duplicates of what we already did. And to each their own on that. But um, we wanted something. We wanted to keep it real and be in control of it again. And so that's what we waited for. And, hey, done. So we look forward to bringing that to you at some point in 2019. Going to be an exciting year for sure. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll bring our guest in. Rod Pyle, space author and journalist, is joining us tonight. It's Beyond Reality Radio, Jason and JV. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know 
know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. By the way, we're still excited to have uh, all those new affiliates joining the affiliate list over the last couple of weeks. And we won't list them now because we've done it before. But thanks for, to all the stations that are joining the uh, family. Absolutely. And we look forward to a bunch more being added relatively soon. Yeah, it's always great to increase the uh, the ability to reach more people and add stations. So thank you to all those stations that have. And this channel, it's being spread like the flu. Yeah, and so in some cases, people people feel the same way as if they'd gotten the flu when they listen. (laughs) Anyway, so tonight we're going to be talking about robotic space exploration with uh, Rod Pyle. Rod is an expert on the topic. His newest book is called Interplanetary Robots. If I have that right, Rod, I'm never sure because you always have uh, stuff in the works, stuff being released, (laughs) but but welcome back to the show. It's great to have you back with us. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to talk about it. Oh, and that is the pleasure. right name, by the way. Okay, so, we went through a bunch of choices, uh-huh. but you know, usually when those shuffles happen, the author sort of doesn't win. So, yeah, that turned out to be the best choice, I think, after all. Well, if my notes are correct, this is one of four books you've got. Uh, so, at this point, being released in 2019, or is is something not right on my notes? No, that's right. Yeah. I've got four new ones, and then three going into reprint. I think what's happening is if you're a space author and you've written about Apollo. Mm-hmm. No matter how far mm-hmm. back that book might be, mm-hmm. it's being brought into reprint because it's already paid for. Right. So, yeah, but, so there'll be a total of seven, but uh, the other the other three are, well, are back there. But I, I got to give you kudos because I'll tell you, as a guy who's written six books, it takes it takes me about two years to write a book. So you're throwing like four yeah. of them out, four of them out well, in one year. And you know, you, you stagger them, right? So a few of them were faster than others. The Space 2.0 book, which is the next one coming out at the end of February, took about four years because it was policy, and I hadn't done much of that, and I had to interview all these people from space agencies all over the world and stuff, and I thought, geez, this is a lot of work. It's like being a real author. So that was kind of a wake-up call. But, yeah, I, I hear you, man. It's a lot of work. So the first question is, I don't know where you are in the country. In the Northeast, it was so cold that I couldn't get myself to venture out to see this <laughs> eclipse last night. Um, did you get out to see the Super Wolf Blood Moon Eclipse? I did. I live in Southern California in, in Alhambra, where it plunged to about 50 degrees. So I braved the, the horrible temperatures outside, only to find that halfway through it got clouded out. So I got a little bit of a look, and then it got clouded out. But I was on a webcast with uh, Astronomers Without Borders that I think was also carried on Nat Geo. So I was kind of running back and forth between you know standing by to be on the webcast and going out and getting a quick look. But, you know, I, and it's funny, is as these the years go on, the names of these eclipses seem to get more dramatic, don't they? Uh, they really do. Well, they, they seem more epic and yeah, <laughs> terrifying each time. Yeah, so it'll be like the super blood wolf Vulcan suicidal. <laughs> yeah, death moon, death moon, killer yeah. eclipse. 
And then we're going to have to parse that one out. But each of those words has a meaning, right? I mean, each one yeah. signifies something specific about what's happening, right? Well, so let's, yeah, let's, let's parse that. So moon we get, right? Yeah, that one's the easy. white thing that goes overhead every night. So we got that part. The wolf moon is the first full moon of a year in January. So, yeah, big deal. Right. Uh, the blood moon is an eclipse. It's red. In this case, I guess you could say it was a super bloody moon because it was a darker red because of the next part, which is the super moon part, which is that the moon was closer to Earth than it normally is for an eclipse by about right. 20,000 miles, which is, you know, a tenth of its distance almost. So that's that's a big deal. Yeah. So it, it dips further into the Earth's shadow and the, the red gets a little darker. So I guess you could say that's a super bloody moon and then go howl like a wolf. <laughs> well, it's a it was a pretty spectacular event, and sadly, it was probably the best night to view it in the Northeast because with that extreme cold weather, it made for really clear skies. Um, but I just could not do. I figured there's going to be plenty of video and photographs <laughs> yeah, on social I'll, I'll media. See it so. online and on TV <laughs> yeah. instead of going out where it's like feel like minus twenty. Well, and that's our age, right? I mean, yeah, that's the age yeah, we live in. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, if you wanted to see it. You had to go outside had and to see do it, some right. hideous black and white transmission on TV. Now I can go on YouTube and see this beautiful eclipse of the lecture in my living room or yeah. curl up in bed if it's cold. Right. So, yeah, I agree. Everything's changed. All right, let's go to break here. When we come back, we'll start our discussion with Rod about his new book called Interplanetary Robots. By the way, you can go to his website, rodpilebooks.com. Uh, Rod, the new books, I didn't notice. They're not on the website yet, right? I mean, it's, you, you have to get that updated still. Yeah, they're in the carousel there, but they're they're not written up yet. Yeah, because so they're brand. Amazon's it's all brand. New. Better choice. Yeah, it's all brand new. So go to Amazon, check that out. Anyway, let's start with uh, kind of give us give us a bit of a synopsis. What's new with the uh, the exploration of space these days? Oh my God! Um, you know, I I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and they were saying, "Well, you know, where do you do you draw the bright line from the beginning of this new space race you keep claiming?" And I said, "You know." I give talks to, to groups of young people and, and other groups frequently. And for years, I was saying, you know, the new space age is almost upon us. Get ready. There's going to be careers and opportunity for anybody. We're getting ready to move up and out again and beyond Earth orbit and all that. And I believed it, but it was always an article of faith and something I had to kind of sell. I think that changed last year when the Falcon Heavy launched early in the year, which, you know, think about it. A pri- this is like a 1950s movie where – some wacky rich inventor decides he's going to fly to the moon with a bunch of guys in, in hard hat suits from the diving <laughs> industry, you know. So Elon Musk gets rich and decides, yeah, I want to build rockets. And I want to build a really big one. And I want it to be made out of three of my smaller ones. And I want it to work the first time. And, you know, most of us thought there was going to be trouble. There wasn't even a launch delay. They did the countdown. They pushed the button. Up it goes. Down come the two side stages and land themselves perfectly like something out of a cartoon. And the only thing they lost is the center stage. But since every rocket till now has been a, other than the shuttle, which was arguably somewhat recyclable, everything else has been expendable. This is just an amazing thing. So that kind of kicked off this new age. What we're seeing now is we've got SpaceX continuing to fly the Falcons and the Falcon Heavy. We've got Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin coming along. Still operating kind of in stealth mode, pretty quiet, not taking paying commissions from NASA or the customers yet. But here's a guy who's putting a billion dollars of his own money in this company every year, 
least so far. I don't know if the divorce will yeah, change that. I was just going to say that, that might change. <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, that commitment, and this is just the big stories. I mean, you've got NASA slowly working towards doing this lunar orbiting station in the early 2020s with Orion and SLS and maybe some private support. And you've got China doing all this amazing stuff. It's landed on the far side of the moon. That's something that we and the Soviets talked about but never quite had the hutchfoot of pull off because you got to put a satellite off to the side of the moon before you can land on the far side. Otherwise, you can't talk to it with radio. So there's just tons of stuff going on. And it's a really exciting time to be alive. So the, the book itself, Interplanetary Robots, obviously that's a very specific title. So what, what are we talking yeah. about? Why did you decide to write this one? Um, I had written Amazing Stories of Space Age, which was a look at uh, some of the amazing flown and wacky unflown human spaceflight missions of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Um, everything from planning to build military bases on the moon to um, huge rocket ships powered by atomic bombs. And I thought, you know, I want to write the sequel to that, or the, the part two of that, about the robots, because I don't think they get enough coverage. And there was kind of a second quieter space race in the 50s and 60s and early 70s between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, who were the only two players in that arena, on the robotic side, because we were both trying really hard to do these these missions of exploration of the inner and outer solar system, us, the outer solar system, the Soviets didn't really try that. And it turns out it's pretty tough. So NASA and the Soviet Union took two different, really different paths, which is where it gets kind of interesting. NASA continued to make their machines smaller and more refined and a little more sophisticated because we had much smaller rockets. And the Soviets built, keep building, building these big, heavy ones, and they were just firing off stuff on the moon at Mars, it seemed like, every couple of weeks. I'm exaggerating, but they just kept flinging their machines out there and seeing which ones would work, and eventually did some really incredible stuff, like landing spacecraft on Venus. So that's the thrust of that book. How long have we been exploring space uh, with unmanned craft? I mean, that obviously preceded sending men into space. It did. Not by much, though. Uh, of course, depending on how you define Explorer, we had Sputnik in 1957, but the Soviets started sending their Luna spacecraft towards the moon in late 58 or 59. I think it was 1959. And uh, again, a mixed bag, not a lot of successes, but we were just sort of getting our, our teeth cut on this, so it was brand new. Really, the first really remarkable missions were, um, in my book anyway, uh, the early Pioneer mission to Venus and then Mariner 4 flying past Mars, which really changed a bunch of things for two reasons. One, and, and obviously the Soviet lunar probe, which shot the backside of the moon, because that was a first. That was a huge deal. The pictures were crummy, but we were seeing something that nobody had ever seen before, because the moon always has the same side facing us, so that was amazing. And then when Mariner 4 went past Mars, that was the first American probe that carried a camera. And it was a big fight to get that camera on there, by the way, because there are a lot of people that thought it was silly to take a camera out just to look at a planet. Well, you're not, you don't know your taxpayers if you think that. <laughs> and we got these pictures back of this arid, desolate world that we still didn't know if there were you know, plants or microbes or eight-legged thoats running around or what there might be, sandworms. Uh, so it was kind of a letdown on the one hand. And on the other hand, it really marked the beginning, I think, of the sophisticated exploration of the solar system. 
Well, especially this day and age now, where we're dealing with all this artificial intelligence, AI, it opens up a whole new possibility of uh, the abilities that we're going to be able to have with sending these things into space, correct? It does. And, and, you know, there's something really fascinating that just happened that kind of speaks to that. So the New Horizons probe, as you know, flew past Jupiter in 2015. Then it just uh, a month ago flew past Ultima Thule, which was this object another billion miles past Pluto out in what's called the Kuiper Belt. It'll look like a big diseased bowling pin. Now, they're doing this flyby with a spacecraft that's about seven hours away. Is it seven hours to 12 hours? I think it's seven hours away, one-way transmission time. So uh, it's got to have a fair amount of AI in it because it's got to be able to take care of its own business, even though it's just a flyby. It only was a couple thousand miles away from the, the planetoid. So it needed to be pretty sophisticated, and yet the computer on board, that chip design was baselined in about 1990, because when you're flying the outer solar system, you got this radiation cooking everything. You need a chip that's been hardened by the military. It takes a long time to do that. They're very expensive, so they tend to not do it very often. So the original design of that chip was, was very antiquated by today's standards, so that's how efficient their programming and their AI capabilities have gotten at NASA and at some of the other space agencies. When we talk about these uh, first really groundbreaking unmanned craft, you mentioned Pioneer, you mentioned Mariner 4. Uh, I don't remember the dates of those. What, what, what are the dates we're talking about? Pioneer was 1962, I think, and Mariner 4 was 1965. 65? So pretty early. You know, I, and you think about technology at that point. I mean, clearly computers were in their infancy. Uh, it, yeah. think cameras themselves were certainly not as capable as they are today. I mean, how was it even possible that those craft could actually send any useful information to us? Because of very clever design. So the computer was really more of a sequencer and... Uh, just giving these basic commands, a lot more of it had to be done from the ground. The Soviets got really good at automating their spacecraft. Unfortunately, they were not terribly good at being able to reprogram them from the ground. So something went wrong in the mission, like uh, in 1971, when the first Soviet orbiters uh, arrived to, to go around Mars and snap pictures of the surface. At the same time, Mariner 9 arrived, which is an American probe, well, when they got there, the planet was covered with a dust storm, and these, these two competing systems arrived at almost the same time. So Mariner 9, JPL, NASA looked at it and said, well, let's shut the camera off until we can see something, because it just looks like a big orange billiard ball. Russians didn't have a choice. Their probes just snapped merrily away looking at this blank, sandy expanse. And they still got good data, but you know you want to have some flexibility but you're right, it was really challenging. And in fact, on uh, Mariner 4, that, that early Mars flight, that was the first flown imaging system of any kind. And it was a, a plumicon tube, I think, or a viticon tube. So a big, long glass tube with a vacuum inside and a photosensitive coating on one end. Really delicate, really fragile. Uh, most of the ones they made for it didn't work. They had to do quite a number of them to find one that would even function. And then you had to get the data back, so they had to be able to record it on a tape recorder. So they had a couple hundred feet of tape that just ran back and forth <laughs> on spools. So it was really primitive, pretty primitive stuff, like you say. It's really unbelievable to think. I mean, given how uh, that kind of technology would fail just in our living rooms, I can't imagine how it yeah. could stand up to the rigor of space travel. Well, and the Voyagers, 
which you'll recall, been out there for, I think, 42 years now, launched in the late 70s, uh, went past the outer planets, and have now both left the solar system, used a very sophisticated version of an eight-track recorder, just like Pop had in his car, you know, or if you're my age, that I had in my car, my first one. And um, they've been running that tape back and forth, collecting and playing data back for over 40 years. Wow. And that's just astonishing to me. And the fact that with these nuclear power supplies, this little 12-foot dish roughly, they're still able to send back data from billions and billions of miles away. If they're exiting the solar system, I and mean, they're even beyond this, it's not really a barrier, but there's this interface between the outgoing solar wind from our star and the incoming pressure from the, the galaxy. And even then, we can talk to these things, and we'll probably be able to talk to them for another six or seven years until it's time to shut them down. And that's, that's longevity, man. Yeah, that's insane, seeing I can't keep my iPhone charged for more than two hours just to know, think right? that these things are still going like that. Yeah, well, I was going to ask about that, because uh, these Voyagers have left the solar system. What is their power source? I I mean, I know a lot of these craft use uh, solar panels and use the sun for power. Are they still are they doing that? And if, if they are, are they still actually getting uh, solar power from the sun that far away? No, both the Voyagers used a, a couple plugs of plutonium. Okay. So it, and as it decays, it gives off heat, and it decays very slowly. And that heat, uh, it's wrapped up in a, a device called thermocouples that kind of like in your thermostat at home, they convert heat to electricity. And so that's been the power supply all this time. Wow. Uh, we have gotten better at solar panels to be able to go out to, to as far as Jupiter so far because the technology has improved. But the real reason we're not using more plutonium power supplies is because we ran out. For a while, we were buying it from the Russians, and then that deal kind of went south. So at this point, they're starting to get ready, or perhaps are in the process now, of making some more nuclear power supply fuel pellets. But it's hard to do. It's toxic. It's dangerous. You know, there are weaponization concerns and all that. So it's been a very slow go. And, yeah, we just went through the inventory. We're talking with Rod Pyle. He's the author of a book called Interplanetary Robots, among many other books that he's authored. Check out his uh, work at rodpylepylebooks.com. Rod, I, I wanted to ask about active uh, unmanned craft currently zooming around our solar system and beyond. How many of them out there? I haven't done a count lately, but there's probably, uh, well, if you're talking about including Earth orbit, there's many dozens, but in the outer planet, or the other planets, the solar system, we've got a couple working the moon, we've got one, two, three, four, I think five at last, last count on Mars, I can't remember if that includes Opportunity or not, which just, that's the rover that just died a few months back. Uh, we've got Juno still orbiting Jupiter, and uh, we've got the Parker probe going around the sun, and there's one either at or headed to Venus, and another to Mercury, a Japanese probe. And then, of course, we've got the Cyrus-Rex and uh, Hayabusa going out to two different asteroids, which has been really fascinating to see because they arrived pretty close to the same time and started doing their tighter orbits and their touch-and-goes, and Hayabusa's already done some sample gathering, so that's pretty cool. How many nations are involved in this? Obviously, the United States, the Russians, the Chinese. You just mentioned the Japanese. Anybody else? Um, India. India's uh, gotten very active. Their main claim to fame at this point was the uh, Mongolian or MOM uh, Mars Orbiter, uh, which is really kind of an engineering mission that contributed some science, but it's in this very large lopsided orbit. 
hasn't really discovered a ton of new things, but it was their first try. And very few people got it right at Mars the first try. It was us and them, you know, so far. It's really hard to do Mars because the distance and dynamics of the planet. So that was a remarkable achievement. And they've got a bunch more stuff planned. Of course, the Europeans have uh, orbiters up there now, two of them, and are planning a rover and a lander. Uh, they've, they've had a failure, and they're planning another one for, I think, 2020. And then, of course, we have the uh, Mars 2020 rover going up, which will soon be renamed by another student contest. So some plucky young individual will come up with a cool name. And that's going to be an interesting mission because it's an astrobiology mission. So it's really starting to look for signs of past or present life. And that's what we've been waiting for ever since Viking landed and kind of didn't answer that question, even though it tried. I imagine um, that these craft take many, many years to design, build, and eventually get into space. Would that be an accurate statement? Yeah, and some of them are built at JPL. Some are built at other contractors. So the fewer and fewer, uh, excuse me, other other field NASA field centers. Although fewer and fewer of that uh, is done, most of it's either JPL or at a private contractor. So Lockheed Martin kind of has a series of lander and and orbiter bus designs they work on, and then JPL does a lot of the construction themselves. But yeah, it's years and years and years, and you've got to make design decisions both in terms of hardware and software and everything else, as soon as you can, because you got to test all that stuff to death. So it'll do what JPL Three was for, which is going on up and operating for 10 years. So if that's the case, then, um, and I know that we've seen tremendous advancements in technology just in the last 10 years. Uh, things have changed so rapidly, at least in, from, from my uh, rather um, mature eyes. Uh, so... Are we are we currently using the most capable and newest technology on these craft, or are we about ten years behind? Well, it depends on which part of it you're looking at. That the sort of bifurcated answer. On the one side, we're tended to use fairly conservative designs for the big, expensive missions. So older radiation-hardened computer chips, and sometimes older mechanical designs, because you want something that's well tested and bulletproof because you don't want some dumb little thing to cause the failure up there, like a a stuck lens cap or something, which has happened. On the other hand, for some of the smaller and more fleet-of-foot projects, they've been using increasingly off-the-shelf hardware, uh, electronics that aren't quite so robust but aren't as expensive. They're willing to trade a little bit of life uh, at the the back end of the project and also a little bit of capability for much lower costs. And as you know, with CubeSats, for instance, they've got miniaturized and off the shelf to the point that a lot of them use iPhone processors or other similar chips in this little satellite that's about the size, half the size of a shoebox, and they're very effective. They're doing all kinds of work in Earth orbit, and the first two were just sent out to Mars with the, um, the recent InSight lander. They sent a couple of CubeSats to relay data as it landed and then fly past the, past the planet and see how they do as they head out towards the asteroid belt. So when that starts happening, between that and lowered launch cost with things like SpaceX and Blue Origin, you're going to be able to start sending these little tiny robots all over the solar system. And as you said, with AI capability, which you can now put in these things because processors are so speedy, you'll be able to do all kinds of stuff. So if you send out 300 of them and 180 of them, crap out in the first five years who cares you still got a bunch out there doing the job please support the program go to patreon.com slash joha that's j-o-h-a-w 
At what point did you first uh, remember being interested in and actually having developing a curiosity for what we were doing in space exploration? Oh, geez. Um, honestly, probably early 80s. I mean, was there an event say. that really made you like, pay attention? I don't attention? think so. I think it was more that it was... Well, I remember there being an eclipse uh, at one, one day while we were in school. And uh, it was one of those things where it was cool because you had all the glasses and everything else. And, and that really piqued my interest into just space in general. Um, but yeah, and I'm not sure. But it, and it's strange because this day and age, you you see where you know years ago everybody was so embedded in everything that was going on in space, and now people, a lot of people, just take it for granted. Ninety percent of the people out there really have no idea what's going on up there. Yeah, I mean, there were uh, the few events like the moon landing, those types of things uh, captured the nation. Now it's almost, uh, you know, okay, well, there it is on the news. That's kind of cool. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, you know, my first real encounter with the curiosity that most of us develop at some point uh, in regards to space was when Skylab was falling to Earth. I was yes. a little kid. And I remember being kind of afraid that it was going to fall on the house. Was it in Australia that it came down? On? I, I think I think it may have been. Um, but that's kind of what's when I started looking to the skies at that point. And of course, the UFO thing always made me look up anyway. But um, yeah, so that was kind of the first thing. Tonight we're talking about with Rod Pyle. He is an author, a space author, in fact, and a journalist. His website is rodpilebooks.com, Pyle spelled with a Y. And we're talking about his new book called Interplanetary Robots. Rod, what was the first thing? that uh, you remember kind of seeing, observing, hearing about that made you look up to the sky? I, you know, I think it was Mariner 4 because I had grown up with all these great novels by Edgar Rice Burroughs and Ray Bradbury and other writers who wrote about Mars. I had watched those incredible Disney movies from the, well, late 50s and early 60s. But I remember the 60s on uh, the, the TV show where he'd talk to Uncle Werner von Braun and they'd talk about what Mars might be like and how we're going to get there and all that. And then this NASA probe goes whizzing past the planet and says, nah, it's just a cold, dry desert. Sorry. And it was a real, I mean, it was a game changer, but it was also distressing to a very young boy because I wanted Mars to be this verdant, amazing place. So I gave a talk at JPL a couple of years ago with a bunch of other uh, space authors. And, I, you know, most people start out with, oh, it's just an honor to be here and all that. I got up and said, I got a bone to pick with you people. You wrecked my childhood. <laughs> well, I, I think they, they not only wrecked you, anyway. not only wrecked your childhood, but they wrecked science fiction. I mean, Martians are called Martians because they were presumed to be these invaders would be coming from Mars. And, you know, we for a very, very long time uh, thought that there might be, well, at least science fiction uh, uh thought there might be some kind of life on Mars that we had to think about or be be uh, concerned with. And it was the stuff of a lot of great things and uh, in fiction now, but at the time they didn't know any better. Well, and up through the sixties, the solar system in fictional and popular terms was a much friendlier place. You know, Venus was going to be a hot swampy planet. Maybe mm -hmm. there would be dinosaurs there <laughs> and Mars was going to be a little colder with thinner air, but kind of like Earth, and you could walk around in, in shirt sleeves and an oxygen mask, you know. And it's turned out that these places are really, really tough to travel to and survive on. There's all kinds of radiation. Earth is one of the few planets that's really protected from radiation. Uh, there's these thin, or, or in Venus's case, very dense toxic atmospheres. 
Mars has soil that's toxic to humans. So it turns out that, you know, almost any Flint, Michigan is a nicer place to go than (laughs) anywhere in the solar system. And I'm sorry, I'm not picking on Flint. It just popped into my head because I was going to say Barstow, California, but probably a lot of your listeners don't know where that is. But any desolate place you can think of on Earth is better than anywhere else in the solar system. Um, I I did want to mention something about what you were talking about when you came back to the break about this message that we get. You know, the space age was this amazing time. There's this idea that the nation was united behind Apollo. I was just correcting an article. I edited a magazine for a group called the National Space Society, and I was editing an article written by a young man about the shift in perception of the space program. And there's this idea people have that there was this golden era where everybody was united and the the interest in going to the moon. And, you know, the actual level of interest in the public is about the same as it is now. Really? And it flexed a lot. You know, when there is the fire, Apollo 1 fire, interest went up and then crashed. Apollo 8 orbits the moon, interest slams the ceiling. Apollo 11, Apollo 13, of course. But those interim missions and the ones after Apollo 13, it tapered very quickly. People just get lackadaisical very fast. What's different now is instead of having, as you know very well, better than I, instead of having the media controlled by a handful of radio and TV networks, we've got access to everything so I think the two factors that come into it are, on the one side, people's motivation to learn about this stuff, and on the other side, the capability of people like myself and NASA itself to reach out and say, hey, this is a really engaging, compelling adventure we're on. Come hang out with us. And that's where there's a little bit of disconnect sometimes. When we, we you kind of uh, touched on this in your last answer, um, you know, we've been able to dispel some myths from these craft uh, as they've passed or uh, orbited planets or moons. Um, they've taught us a lot. But uh, expand on that a little bit. What other kind of information can we get from these craft? It's pretty amazing the types of things that we can learn about uh, planets, moons, asteroids, space from these, in some cases, small robotic craft. So let me give you a recent example that just torqued my brain. And I, I spent a lot of time at JPL because I've, I've written some semi-technical reviews for them and so forth. So you're spending time talking to these scientists and engineers. And it always makes me feel like I'm their pet Labrador. You know, I'm there with my tongue hanging out, listening to them talk about all these really smart things. Um, so I was just reading a, uh, a write-up of a paper that came out, uh, I think, in the last couple of weeks talking about the age of Saturn's rings. Did you see that story? No. I haven't seen that one. So we always thought they were about as old as the solar system, give or take, and that it was just a bunch of junk left over from the formation of the planet or maybe a failed moon or or two that formed this disk of really thin uh, ice and rock around the planet, which a lot of it's like size of particulate dust or smoke, but that's what makes Saturn's rings. Well, the Cassini mission, as they were getting ready to auger in on their final suicidal dive into the planet, was doing this, this series of increasingly close passes between the rings of the planet in that inner gap, which is a few thousand miles wide. But that's some really sharp shooting. And by measuring the radio waves from the spacecraft, they were able to discern the deflection from the gravity of the rings, which in many places are only you know, dozens to hundreds of feet thick. And that measurement told the mass of the rings. They were able to work backwards from that and say, okay, 
the rings, we know they're 99% pure. How long would it take them to become 1% impure? We could do that by measuring the mass of the deflection of the spacecraft. And I thought, boy, that is about as Sherlock Holmes as it gets. You know, that's just one example. I considered myself a decent student in math. I, I got very good grades in math. But I hear things like that, and I know that the math involved in, in computing those types of numbers has to be just um, you know, well beyond anything we could talk about on this program. Well, but that's why you and I do what we do, because <laughs> you talk to those guys. I mean, some of them are incredibly eloquent and glib, like Carl Sagan, and others kind of have trouble relating to people, you know. So I, there's a place for everybody, but I'm with you. I, I was an astronomy major at UCLA for about a year and a half until I hit differential calculus, and I suddenly realized that astronomy and I were, were not meant to be partners. <laughs> So that was the end of that, and I went into the media instead. It's, it's hard stuff. By the way, the phone lines are open if you have a question or a comment, 844-687-7669. Let's go to uh, Barry in North Carolina, great friend of the show. Hey, Barry, welcome to the show. Hey there, guys. i tell you what, it's supposed to go down to 20 degrees tonight, but I bet in Cooperstown it's going down to 10 below. 10 to 10 yeah, to 20 below, I mean, and then a wind chill on top yeah, of it. And 20 degrees, that's like summer right now for yeah, us. I would take that. I'd go yeah, out in short sleeves. <laughs> I would. What's on your mind, Barry? Hey there, listen. I wanted to, uh, uh, This is a little bit of a funny thing. But I know you, Rod, you've been asked a thousand times, are you any kin to Gomer Powell? <laughs> oh, God. You know, I'm 62. When you grew up in that era, you either got that or some other reference to piles lying yeah. around. No, I'm afraid I'm not. Thank you. Okay, no problem. But I was just thinking about the Andy Griffith show. But listen, uh, what do you think, in a serious mode, is uh, the exact purpose and w- the technology involved for the, with the Chinese for landing a, a space probe on the dark side of the moon for the very first time? Uh, well, you know, it, it's interesting, and it's not really, it's called the dark side, but it's just the far side because it gets light and dark just like it does here, which is actually hey, what caused hey, their plant experience to end. Sorry? And were you trying to add something, Barry? Oh, well, yeah, I just said that for Dark Side of the Moon from Pink Floyd. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, well, that's true. Yeah, I forgot about that. So the technology, there's nothing really new there in terms of the machines they were using. It's how they use them. So they put this little satellite in an orbit that keeps it in one place off the side of the moon, visible to Earth and then use that to relay radio messages to their lander and their rover. And that was really, the, the, that and a fairly pinpoint landing were kind of the big deals about this mission. And just the fact that it's on the far side, because that's something that neither we nor the Soviets ever pulled off. So I think that's what's remarkable about that. And they've got some interesting experiments on board. Did we ever try or did we see a reason? I mean, some things are just not worth trying to do. Is there is there something that was, I mean, other than maybe using that, uh, method in some other uh, effort on on a planet or something was is there was there any, really anything to gain or we, did we just look at that and say it's not worth the effort? No, I think there was interest in it. It was a money problem. There was actually talk about sending uh, possibly sending one of the Apollo missions to the far side, and you've got an area which is actually where the the, the Chinese probe landed called the uh, South Aiken Basin which is this enormous impact feature. And the nice thing about these huge, it's almost like a huge crater, except bigger, 
is that uh, Mother Nature's done your work for you. If you want to see what's in the bedrock of the moon, you just land there, and, and nature already punched a big hole out. You don't have to drill or anything. So that's a, a, a spot of great interest scientifically and geologically. Another thing that you're going to see increasingly the, the lunar probe's looking for is natural resources. We're pretty sure there's water ice on the moon. We know because the Apollo program, the Soviet sample returns, that there's metal and oxygen and a lot of other stuff, the glass that could be used out of the lunar soil. And that stuff's just sitting there. So rather than spending what I think now is about 8000 or $10,000 a gallon to launch water up into orbit, we can just go get ice from the moon and melt it down and use that. And that gives you drinking water, rocket fuel, breathable oxygen, all that stuff. So increasingly, I think we'll see that going on. We're talking with Rod Pyle. His new book is called uh, Interplanetary Robots. His website is rodpilebooks.com. Uh, he has a number of books to his credit as well. Uh, he's written a lot of stuff. Uh, you can find out more information about Rod by going to his website, rodpilebooks.com. Rod, this is a, a short segment. Um, you've got a bunch of books uh, kind of spanning space topics. Uh, if someone was unfamiliar with your work, where would you recommend they start? Oh, in terms of which to read? Which book, yeah. Yeah, I think the easiest, in unless you're, for this year, a lot of people are going to be looking for Apollo books, and I've got three of those now, two in reprint and one new, so you can find any of them. Um, but I think just in terms of a general point of, of entry, either Interplanetary Robots or Amazing Stories of the Space Age, just because the publisher was kind enough to kind of let me have my head, and I could have fun with it. So, you know, sometimes these books can get kind of dry, and and you're kind of marching through this progression of this machine did this and this did that, here are the specifications, all that. But when they give you a free hand to kind of tell some of the inside stories and look at some of the humor in this, because, you know, the space race, especially was a time when things were moving very quickly and they were making decisions by the seat of their pants because we hadn't done any of this before. And there's some really zany stuff that went on, so I tried to, to pull some of that out of the stories. Did I read this correctly? Is Buzz Aldrin going to write a, a forward for you? He wrote one for my next book, which comes out the end of February, which is called Space 2.0, and that's about private space, new NASA, the international sector, looking ahead about 20 years. And then he also was kind enough to write one for uh, the Apollo book called First on the Moon, the Apollo 11, what is it, Apollo 11 50th Anniversary Experience. I, I, Subtitles are kind of long um, because I work with Buzz. I've worked on him, uh, worked with him on a few books over the years. He's also the board of governors of the National Space Society. I edit their magazine, so we got to know each other there. And boy, was that wonderfully serendipitous for me. I was just going to ask, what's it like to meet uh, what I would consider to be a, uh, a legend, um, especially you know when it comes to. Uh, breaking new ground, uh, expanding the frontier, you know, doing all the things that we give credit for those who jumped on covered wagons and went west for, yeah. but, but multiplied by 10. Yeah, or 100. I've, I've met a bunch of the moonwalkers. They're all different people. Uh, most of them are very gracious, and they know their place in society and appreciate it, and there's a certain humility there. In Buzz's case, I think what what takes him another step beyond, in a sense, Oh, that was pretty good. See what I did there? Um, <laughs> is that he's, besides being just almost frighteningly brilliant, it's like there's five brains in there all talking at the same time. Here's a guy who came back from the moon, 
and he's written about it, so it's no secret. He had a very tough time with coming home. He had a very judgmental father who said, yeah, that's nice. What are you going to do next? Oh, man. And, you know, struggles with alcohol and depression and so forth. But he recovered from that, and throughout, to this day, he his entire focus, and his, I interviewed his son, he'll tell you the same thing, is about furthering the agenda. He wants to see us get back out there, get out of Earth orbit, keep going, back to the moon, go to Mars, stop sitting around, We've got to work with the Chinese, that's great, they'd make good partners. And he's, so he's really progressive and incredibly um, imaginative and, and visionary in that way. And that's right. something I really appreciate about All right. Him. Our phone number is 844-687-7669. Don't forget, tomorrow night, William Stick Evers will be with us. He's an astrologer. We're going to be talking about his predictions uh, of the 2019-2020 global crisis. This is pretty dire stuff. And... Um, there's been a few people that have been predicting uh, economic and environmental catastrophe in the next few years. So, um, you know, when when you start hearing a chorus of this, it's worth talking about and, and listening uh, to these folks and kind of getting an idea of what might happen and, and is there a way to stop it. So you saying I should take all my money out of the bank right now? Because that $32.80 might shut down the bank. You're right. And I'm not telling you to do that, but I will tell you the guest last week was telling people to do that. Oh, well, that stinks. All right. So on Wednesday, we're we going to cause a run on banks. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we're going to be Susan Messino on, on Wednesday, author and rock and roll historian. And we'll be discussing, well, the secrets of the universe and uh, also synchronicities, positive manifestations, healing with light, numerology, past lives, and the list just goes on and on, so make sure you tune in. It's going to be some great shows. Yeah, a lot of great stuff coming up. As uh, We've got a great one tonight, too, with Rod Pyle. Visit his website, rodpilebooks.com. Pyle is P-Y-L-E. Uh, his new book is called uh, Interplanetary Robots. We're talking about unmanned spacecraft as they've traveled throughout the solar system and beyond. And, Rod, again, thanks uh, be, for being here with us. Um, when we look at the planets of the solar system, I'm not even sure at this point if we've got nine or ten, um, but what uh, which planets have we landed craft on? We have landed on, the Soviets landed on Venus. Um, Americans did a couple of drop probes there, that, but no soft landers. And then uh, the American program has landed a number of spacecraft rovers on Mars. We, of course, landed on the moon, and that's about it. Uh, you can't land on on uh, Saturn or Jupiter because they're they're gaseous, except way down the core beyond, or anything can survive. As are the other planets all the way out, to, except for Pluto. And but now we recognize it's funny you mentioned the planet thing because I when I worked I worked at Caltech briefly as a writer, and Mike Brown is a professor there who's you know famously self proclaimed Pluto killer, and supposedly got death threats for it and so forth. So while I was there, there was a lot going back and forth about not only should Pluto be reinstated as a planet, and he said no, because there's other objects out there that aren't in the same kind of orbits that are, or there are actually better orbits than, than Pluto, more like planet orbits that are the same size or larger, so we can't call Pluto a planet anymore, it's a planetoid and all this kind of stuff, or a dwarf planet, I guess, is the sort of pejorative term. And now there's all this talk about uh, planet X or planet the new planet nine out there, this big, dark, hard to find thing somewhere way out in the Kuiper belt beyond Pluto's orbit that seems to be what's shoving all these other items around and accounting for these kind of weirdo orbits you get out to the edge of the solar system, but they can't find it. So there's a lot of discussion happening about that, which is one of those really cool stories that 
will probably unfold in the next couple of years. We, um, and, and forgive me, I should know the answer to this myself, but I know that uh, we recently landed, I believe, a, uh, a probe on Mars that was able to dil- drill into the surface deeper than we've been able to do that before. Uh, are we getting data from that, or did I dream this whole thing? No, that's Mars Insight, and that was pretty recent, okay, and you're so. right on the money. So that that is a, uh, a geophysics mission. So we've learned a lot about the Martian surface. We've learned a lot about as far down as, as ground-penetrating radar can look from both the surface and orbit. We've learned a lot about uh, the atmosphere and the dynamics of the planet, but what we don't know is very much about what's going on inside, except by that sort of inference we were talking about before about you know, track the orbit of an orbiter to see where the gravitational lumps are and all that. But they really wanted to know more about the core of the planet and the interior dynamics and the history. So this Mars InSight lander, and it's a static lander, uh, has two major experiments on it. The first one's a seismometer, and there was a, a couple of seismometers on the Viking landers, but they didn't really work very well. They are up on the top deck, and the wind would blow, and they'd vibrate, and one of them got a pin stuck in it and never did, uh, did function. So we really want to see, are there Mars quakes, and what are the dynamics of the planet? So the best way to do that is to have a separate seismometer. It looks like a chafing dish almost, and a robotic arm picked it up and set it on the surface on a nice smooth spot. They found a nice smooth area to land, and that started to send back data. I think they're calibrating it now, actually. And, of course, there's a camera because they all carry cameras now. But the other thing uh, that went on this is called a heat flow experiment or a mole. And it's another box that you set down the surface, and it's got this coiled-up 16-foot snake in it. But rather than drilling, it's got a hammer in the tip of it, and it self-hammers itself down in the ground. And they think where they landed, the soil's soft enough that they'll be able to get down to that full 16-feet uh, limit. And here again, the genius of, of NASA and JPL, the scientists that work there, uh, by looking at the way heat leaves the planet and, and travels around the rocks around this 16-foot borehole, they'll be able to extrapolate how things work much deeper inside. That's pretty neat. Um, we were talking about Jupiter. Uh, we can't land on Jupiter, but aren't we looking at one of the moons or a couple of moons? Yeah, we're looking at, uh, at um, God, I'm thinking of the Saturnian moons. Europa is kind of the main target. And also they talk about Enceladus and Titan, not Saturn. But, um, yeah, we're, we're looking at those for a couple of reasons. The, the main point of interest is that it appears that there are liquid seas underneath these frozen icy surfaces, probably briny, but maybe not, maybe not excessively so. And because the, the uh, moons are large enough to be flexed by the gravity of Jupiter and Saturn, they emit warmth because of that friction and because of some radioactive decay inside. So it keeps that water liquid and possibly even even somewhat temperate inside. So a lot of people think there's a good chance for life anywhere from microbes up to, you know, the outer solar system dolphins swimming around up there. That's a stretch, but it could happen. Jellyfish, maybe. And so we really want to get a lander there. Um, so they're sending out the Europa Clipper mission, which is going to be an orbiter, and that will do kind of pick up where, where uh, Cassini and uh, Galileo left off in trying to go through these, well, they orbit, go through these plumes of uh, geysered water that come up out of these icy worlds and taste them and see what kind of organic elements and so forth you can find in those plumes. And then eventually they'd like to land and, and drill down and get beneath the ice, but that's, that's a much bigger technology project. 
Well, so right now it's pretty much all governments that are doing this inner, well, this uh, interplanetary travel, correct? And so, yeah, so, but not for long. Well, and that—that's what I wanted to get to. How? First off, how long do you think before some of these tech billionaires start doing it? And what do you think is holding them off from it right now? Is it like you were saying, the, the powering the systems with the plutonium and and things of that nature? Well, I think what's holding off the billionaires is a customer. You know, unless NASA is going to at least partner with them, they don't have any reason to go beyond the moon. Uh, Musk is going to be flying uh, his BFR, now called Starship, rocket around the moon in a couple of years because he's got another billionaire, you know, in that very small group of friends they have, who's willing to pay to buy that mission and fly himself and eight or ten of his closest friends out around the moon. But in terms of Mars, you know, until there's some, there's this whole issue, and I, I talk about this a lot in Space 2.0, of infrastructure, mostly between the Earth and the moon and Earth orbit, but also out to Mars eventually. You want to have fuel depots. You want to have power stations. You want to have places where you can pull up resources and get that water I was talking about and have 3D printers to make spare parts and all this in space. Once that's there, it's going to be a lot cheaper to go back and forth between the Earth and the Moon and ultimately the Earth and Mars. But right now, it's expensive, it's scary, it's dangerous. So really, we've got to give them a reason to go. Musk, I think, is the one person... Bezos maybe is, is definitely going to be going to the moon. He's got landers that he's planning now. Uh, but Musk is the one who's aimed at going to Mars, regardless of whether government supports it or not. And he just wants to do it. He thinks it's important. But I think, for my money, that's a good enough reason right there. Well, so I say give him about six years. Okay. And there's been a lot of talk about sending you know, life forms uh, off the planet and uh, some of these interplanetary uh, uh, trips. Now, and there's been also a lot of talk about the merging of well, humans and technology or creating some sort of a robotic that has artificial intelligence that's able to to communicate and move just like an, uh, a normal person. Do you think that, right. that that is going to have to be that step for us to travel that far? Because I know... The human body, of course, you, you're losing muscle mass. You, you're all these conditions when you're when you're out there in space. So w the limitation of man, of course, is is real. So yeah. there comes a point where they have to either well, cr you know, cross cross uh, breed these. Well, not breed, but uh, create these things that are they're hybrids or just things that are machine in general with with some sort of a human like intelligence. It's a really interesting subject. I'm glad you brought it up. I've been writing about this a lot lately. It goes everywhere from advanced machines to faster propulsion systems and all the way out to the transhumanism and uh, telepresence conversation. So if you're talking about the solar system, we just need better propulsion systems and protections, and I think we can get to Mars. Probably that'll be it for a long time, because there isn't a lot of reason to go further, at least not for the foreseeable future. But we can do that as, as these wet fleshy, watery bags of meat that we are, as long as we protect ourselves well enough. But you're right, we're really delicate. So instead of hardening the spacecraft, how about we, we harden the passengers, which could be anything from taking a human brain, if you go for the science fiction version, sticking it in some kind of machine body, or taking human consciousness and transferring it to some kind of AI system, or actually just sending out AI and saying, okay, I'm going to plug it to the back of my skull here on Earth, where I'm perfectly adapted to live for as long as I, I, I manage to stay alive, and I'll experience a telepresence. And really, at that point, 
what is the difference between being here and there? If my physical body is sitting in my easy chair on Earth, but all my sensations are on a planet near Alpha Centauri, where I'm walking around the surface of something that would kill me in a quick second if I was a human being, because I'm now the Terminator out there, essentially, I can do whatever I want. You know, is the location of it really the key factor there? And that, that becomes a, a philosophical discussion that's kind of above my pay grade, I'm afraid, because I didn't study the, the great philosophers enough. But what do you think? I mean, you guys talk about this kind of stuff all the time in other, in other venues, I mean, does that still is that still us there? Well, and I th I think depending on how they do it, of course, at this day and age, we have sy systems right now, and and you're aware, even the government has them, where we have virtual reality that we can tie into and control robotic arms, you know, thousands of miles away to do to do things instantaneous. So it's not a far leap to think that we're able to sit in an office or, or somewhere with some sort of a VR system and, and you know, a, a robotics out in space where we're controlling it from the comforts of our, our desk or whatever. And also, so even if you're able to make first contact or whatever, but so it's not a far fetch. It's not a far leap to think that we, we would be able to yeah send something out there that we're, again, you're plugged into here back on earth and you're just able to move as you're moving your arms here, you're moving arms there. Well, the problem, though, is until we, we figure out a way to sort of skirt these crummy laws of physics that keep getting in the way of all the fun stuff we want to do, anywhere much beyond the moon, the delays are so long for those radio signals if you're using radio or light. So out to Mars and back is roughly, depending on, on where it is in its orbit, a 12 to 15-minute uh, one-way trip and double that for round round trip. If you're talking about Alpha Centauri, it's four years out and four years back, and it's going to be a real boring thing to wait for your arm to move. Right. So, you know, that's the one limiting factor there in terms of telepresence. So unless, you know, they can figure out some way to communicate with quantum entanglement, which really smart people, Caltech, keep telling me, probably isn't going to happen because it doesn't work that way. But it sure seems like if you've got a, 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 part, a quantum particle here and a quantum particle way out there, and they both do the same thing at the same time, there must be some way to communicate, but I'm told that that's not practical. I've got, It'd be cool if it was. It, it is. We've got just a couple minutes left with you, and I want to ask another science fiction hypothetical question here just to get your take on it. We've had right. folks We've had folks on the program uh, that talk about hollow earth theory, that there's actually civilizations below the surface of the earth. Um, we've often looked at the planets as in, uninhabitable because, in many cases, because they're just too cold. Is it possible that there is a hollow, um, I don't know, name a planet, and uh, and there could be life, whether it's intelligent life or otherwise, living below the surface in a nice, comfortable uh, environment that's warmed by the core of the planet. Well, in terms of the the geophysics part of that question of how do you actually have a hollow core, I can't answer that one. I think that would be tough. But we do know that both the Moon and Mars have extensive, apparently extensive lava tube systems, and those are actually being looked at as a place to build settlements up there because they give us free radiation protection. So you got this roof of rock over you. So could there be um, animals or creatures living down there? Absolutely. You know, the atmosphere is a little thicker. They could be a little warmer. They definitely are protected from radiation. And the other things that concern us about being on the, uh, the surface. So, yeah, and I would love to, you know, like I said before, I'd love to go down there and find 
you know, days of the princes of Mars down there, but it's probably more <laughs> likely we'll find some plants and microbes or something. The, the conversations are always fascinating when we have Rod Pyle on the program, and we appreciate him being here. Rod, again, the website is rodpilebooks.com, and where can people get a hold of the books? Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere else that fine books are sold, as the saying goes. <laughs> Well, Rod, thanks so much for coming and hanging out with us again, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and we definitely got to do this again. Thanks. I can't wait to come back. I really appreciate it. I always feel uh, dwarfed by the conversations that have to do with space and just the vastness and the distances and the uh, complexity and the mystery of space and how little we really, really know. Really? It's oh, it's the... I don't know. It's, it is mind-blowing. It truly is. It really is the final final frontier, as Captain James T. Kirk tells us all the time. You know he wasn't real, right? Oh, who? who that, wasn't that a documentary? No, no. It wasn't? <laughs> it wasn't? You, 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 you thought this this long that it was like a reality show, didn't I you? thought that was a documentary <laughs> series, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, hey, if you haven't yet, make sure you head over to uh, facebook.com slash beyondrealityradio. Like that Facebook page for us. Then head to beyondrealityradio.com where you can find all the stations we are on across the country. And that list is constantly being updated with new stations being added all the time. And uh, so check it often. You can also uh, download our free smartphone apps, which allow you to listen live, catch past shows, join the online chat, and more. And uh, Or any night we are live, just feel free to click the Listen Live button at beyondrealityradio.com or the Listen Live and Chat button. And you can listen right there from the website or just listen from the website while browsing the rest of the web. We try to make it easy. And if you download the show from iTunes or anywhere else, just take two seconds of your time, please, and rate it for us. Helps put the show forward and makes it easier for people to find. And that's what it's all about, getting the word out. It is about getting the word out. Tomorrow night we're talking with William Stick Evers about um, the looming 2019-2020 global crisis. That sounds ominous and probably something we should get educated about. Yeah, so start taking your money out of the bank now. And uh, and then Wednesday we've got Susan Massino, author and rock and roll historian. And we're going to be discussing the secrets of the universe, uh, investigate, and we're going to be talking about synchronicities, positive manifestations, healing and light, numerology, past lives, and more. That's going to pretty much do it for us. You listen to Jason and JV. We'll catch you all tomorrow. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.